Welcome to the Seashore Church Message of the Week. This message is designed to bring more of heaven into your world today. For more resources like this, or to learn more about our church, visit seashorechurch.com. We're going to read tonight from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. I love the book of Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Remember, this is a a Jew that grew up knowing that if I see God face to face, I'm done. Like they knew that when people touch the Ark of the Covenant, boom, they're gone. They're dead. If I see God, I am definitely not going to make it through this. But then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. Even the seraphim didn't die to touch the coal with his hands. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your presence. I thank you, God, that you want to meet with us tonight way more than we ever wanted to meet with you. And God, I pray that you help me. I need your help. I'm your son. But I want more than anything else to reflect your glory and to communicate your love to my brothers and my sisters here tonight who are also your sons and your daughters. So God, let my words be yours because mine fail a lot. But your word never fails. Anoint my lips tonight, God, that these wouldn't be my words, but that they would be yours. And they'll accomplish everything you've set forth for them to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you know that what you wear says a lot about you? Do you know that? You know the term dress for success? The problem is in my house, I would do shorts, flip-flops, and t-shirts 12 months out of the year. I would move to Florida just so I could wear shorts and flip-flops year-round. To me, clothing is more of a form 
sorry, function rather than form. I'm not super big into fashion. I get compliments on this shirt all the time. I never get compliments on shirts, but I keep getting a compliment on this shirt. And Romy bought this shirt for me, and that's probably why. (laughs) So I'm just not into it. But truth is, what you wear says a lot about you. This past week, Brent and I were in New York. We went to a conference up there called Cultivate Revival. It's pretty cool. Randy Clark, Bill Johnson, Todd White, Marilyn Hickey. It was, a, it was a really good conference focused on revival, kind of specifically for the city of New York. Um, but I know that Brent has got this gift of evangelism on him, and I just want to put him into an environment of impartation and hearing from some great evangelists uh, in this country. And, and man, God really fell on this guy big time. So I'll let him tell you about it later. Uh, but we're walking around New York because you're not going to go to New York and just go to meetings all day, are you? So in between some of the sessions of this conference, we're uh, figured out the best way to get through New York is actually on these bikes, the city bikes, where you can kind of check in and check out. Um, And I'm just grateful I have a guardian angel because the way we rode bikes through the traffic in New York City, that was interesting. So we had a good time riding through and New York is very funny because it's a very eclectic mix of people. Most of you have probably been there. It's really only the third time I've ever been through the city. But you see people of all different types of dress. Some people have their ethnic dress from whatever country they're from. Everybody is kind of fashionable in their own way. Do you know what I mean? Nobody just threw something on like they do in in my house, or at least for me. They all thought about what they put on, and their clothing said a lot about them. We saw some pretty high-end restaurants, though we ate street food most of the time. A lot of street food. I think I rode 30 miles in one day on these city bikes and probably gained 20 pounds in the process, if that gives you any idea. We ate very well. But you see some of these high-end restaurants, the Michelin-starred restaurants, and you see people going into these restaurants, and man, they're dressed to the nines. You can tell. They've got, you can look and go, man, they spent some money on those clothes. You know what I'm talking about? And I understood that in, in New York... The people who are rich have the really nice clothes, but the billionaires show up to the three Michelin star restaurants in jeans and a t-shirt. That's how you know the billionaire from the really rich person. They're in a nice restaurant, but they're wearing jeans and a t-shirt. But the one thing that always gives away money, you can't hide money when it comes to shoes. You can always tell whether somebody's got money by the shoes they're wearing. Sometimes you'll have a nice suit and cheap shoes, and you're like, they're just faking it. They've only got one good suit. And then even the billionaires, they may have jeans and a t-shirt, but they've got those, they look like sneakers, but they're like $3,000 sneakers, you know what I'm talking about? And so it's like, okay, you, you can't hide it. We know you're a billionaire. But what you wear says a lot about you. Probably a lot about Brent and I, because we were riding bikes through Central Park, and it was hot. So we, we both kind of took our shirts off and are just riding around like you cruise down the ocean front at the boardwalk. Then we came out of Central Park, and we realized we're on Fifth Avenue, and it's like all the high-end stores, and we're laughing because we suddenly went, do you realize we're riding around Fifth Avenue shirtless right now? So the way you dress or don't dress can say a lot about you. I'm from Virginia Beach, yeehaw. That's what I felt like going down Fifth Avenue. Um, That was great. I love it. But you know what? In the Bible times, what you wore said a lot about you too. Clothing was actually an important thing in the Old Testament because it spoke of either your status or your role or kind of your function and and what you did. There, Neil, that uh, priestly garments were a really big deal. The ephod that the priests would wear um, was actually a symbol of their purity and their holiness and the way that they were set apart 
uh, before God. It says a lot about you. A king's robe would symbolize their power and their authority, right? And, you know, we, we read about how Elijah, when he ascended into heaven, he gave Elisha, his apprentice, what did he give him? He gave him his mantle. You know what a mantle is? It, it's a robe. It's actually a robe. It, it meant something to receive your master's robe. Jonathan, when he aligned with David, they said they were one in heart. When, when Jonathan, actually what I love about this, what made Jonathan one in heart with David is when he stood before Goliath. Uh, sorry, when David stood before Saul, Jonathan's dad, holding Goliath's head. I love that. It's like, I want to know this guy. That's pretty cool. There's a linking of hearts. There's that warrior heart that linked them together. But it says that in that linking of hearts, Jonathan gave David his robe. Because what you wear says a lot about you. And even the prodigal son, when he comes home, what does the father put on the prodigal son? He puts on him his robe. It means something. Jesus had a robe put on him, but it was in mockery. But either way, it was a way of signifying, even through mockery, that he was a king. And in the book of Revelation, it talks about the saints, which is us, who are dressed in white robes. Interesting. This whole theme of robes keeps coming up over and over again in the Bible. You know, when we hear about a, a train in our culture now, it's usually a wedding. I just did this wedding uh, with, with uh, Kelsey and, and Stuart. And usually a bride comes and she has a train that, you know, the, the bridesmaid or the maid of honor makes sure it's all fluffed out and looking nice. And it's kind of the only time, and that's all kind of we associate with it is with a bride. But throughout the course of history, trains were actually something that were connected to kings. Kings wore trains, not brides. We've kind of transferred that over. But it was the king who would wear the train of his robe and it would, it would flow out from him and the longer the train was, the more power and authority that king symbolized. And many people say that those trains that were on the back of a king's robe weren't just part of one garment that they put together, but the more power and authority the king would grow in, the longer the train would become. And some have even said that some of the Things that were put on this train were great accomplishments. The king builds a city, they add to the train, almost like putting a little patch onto the train. It would get a little bit longer. Or, you know, they would accomplish some great feat or build something, and oh, we're going to add something else to it. Your power and your authority have increased. But oftentimes what would happen is when they defeated another king or an enemy, that king would take a piece of the other king's train that he's defeated, cut it off and attach it to his own. So the more patches and the more things you have on this train, the more things you have defeated, the more things you have accomplished, the more things you have done. So the longer the robe, if you saw a king walk down the aisle and he had a long train, you would look at him and think, that guy has defeated some enemies. That guy is like the Golden State Warriors. I prefer the Chicago Bulls of the 90s, of the modern era. 
like he's undefeated. He must have really accomplished something in his life. You know, I actually think you can have a different theology on this, and that's okay. But I think this is why David was so stricken with guilt when he cut the hem of, his, of Saul's robe in the cave of Agilom. Do you remember when David was being pursued by Saul and he's hiding in a cave? And then King Saul came in to relieve himself in the cave. And David's like, I can't believe it. I could kill him right now. And he said he cut off the hem of his garment so that he could show him that he spared his life. And then later, David was stricken with guilt. I think that was more than just saying, I had the opportunity and kill you and didn't. Because what does a king do to a defeated foe? He cuts off one king's robe and puts it on his own. I think what, why David was stricken with guilt was not just because he had the opportunity to kill Saul, was because he was going to take Saul's glory by his own hand rather than the hand of God. And he realized this is not God's plan. I'm not meant to take my authority with my own hands, but true authority comes from God. And he was stricken with guilt. But you know what I love about David? He repented. That's why God calls him a man after his own heart. You know, Queen Elizabeth II, the current Queen of England, right? Yeah, just making sure. Queen Elizabeth II, at her coronation, you know, when they put the crown and she actually becomes queen, they say that her train was 25 feet long and 15 feet wide. Could you imagine how long that is? And what she's saying, I am the queen of England, because that's how she walks. I'm so bad at strutting, I can't even do it without looking super awkward. But she's coming down the aisle 25 feet long and 15 feet wide. Now Isaiah is getting a picture, he's getting a vision of what is likely Solomon's temple. Isaiah was a prophet in Judah who probably worked inside Solomon's temple at the time. And during these times, so he would have been familiar with the temple. And Solomon's temple, we see by the measurements that are actually in the Bible, was 180 feet long, was 90 feet wide, and likely 20 stories tall. Can you imagine how big that is? 180 feet long, 90 feet wide, 20 stories tall. So if you were to fill the whole thing like with water, it's about 3.4 million cubic feet. That's how big Solomon's temple was. And what he saw was that the train of his robe filled the temple. This is not a picture of a wedding. This is a picture of the victory of our God. That the train of his robe completely filled the temple. So when Isaiah, this is his call, when he, we hear the, the famous verse when God's going, who will I send? And he goes, here I am, Lord, send me. I promise you it wasn't because Isaiah just always had this innate feeling that he was supposed to be something different. It's because he saw the train of his robe all 3.8 million cubic feet was filling the temple. That's what made the difference in Isaiah's life. The temple was filled with every victory and accomplishment that God had done. 
Think about this. That train represents the victory of our God. It represents the accomplishment of our God. That when Isaiah looks and he sees it filling the temple, you can imagine a temple kind of like this, but much bigger. And as the train is filling the temple, he sees Adam walking in the cool of the garden with God, sitting on that train. He sees Eve give birth to Seth after Cain kills Abel and it looks like everything was going wrong. Yet then she gives birth to Seth, the third son, and everything else changes and they begin to populate the earth. He, he looks over here and he sees Noah and his family coming out of the ark to begin a new life and repopulate the earth once again. He looks over here and he, he sees the covenant with Abraham. I will be your God and you will be my people. He looks in another spot and he sees Pharaoh's daughter pick up this little baby from crocodile-infested waters and bring him into the palace to be the second greatest ruler in all of the world. He sees Moses speaking to a burning bush and the bush talks back. The first time outside of Adam that we see somebody hearing the voice of God for themselves. And he sees it on the train. He sees the Red Sea stand at attention as God's people cross over safely. And then the evil that followed them gets swallowed up. He sees it on the train. He sees the manna and the quail and the water from a rock. He saw the Jordan once again stand back and God's people cross through on dry ground, safe and secure. He sees Jericho's walls crumbled in a heap, but a resident prostitute who believed God become the ancestor of the Messiah in Rahab. It's on the train. He sees the baby Samuel. The answer to Hannah's. Tear-soaked groanings of prayer in her arms. The baby I believe for. Nobody else would believe with me. But you heard my cry. And I hold this baby in my arms. He sees it on the quilt. He sees it on the train. He sees a young shepherd boy standing before a king with the head of a giant in his hand. He saw Naomi standing victorious as what had been stolen from her had now been redeemed. He sees Esther overcome her own fear and sense of insecurity and risk her life for her people. He sees the genocidal Haman hanging on the gallows that he intended for God's man. He watches three men enter a fiery furnace, but four men are seen in it because there's a fourth man like the son of a God's walking in the fire. It's all on the train. He watched lions purr in Daniel's lap. He saw fire fall from heaven on Mount Carmel and consume the sacrifice after Elijah cut the bull. If you didn't catch that message, that was about three weeks ago. I encourage you to do that. He sees it all in the train, and it's filling the temple. Now, here's the thing about this verse. It says, and the train of his robe filled. When we read that in English, we think of it as being in past tense. But the Hebrew word is actually filling, meaning it was still 
coming in. There was no more room left in the temple, but it was filling the temple. It was continually coming. The temple was being continually filled with the victory, with the accomplishments, and with the promises of God. That means not only did he see what God had done, he was seeing what God had not yet done, but he had already won the victory of it. God wasn't done yet. It was still coming. He saw a young teenage girl holding the Savior of the world in her arms. And Jesus, he watched blind eyes open. He saw broken hearts be mended. He watched prisoners freed and captives released. He saw the head of a serpent being crushed by the heel of that little baby who was in his mother's arms. And he saw tongues of flame coming to rest down on 120 people who just believed Jesus enough to stick around until he showed up. It was on the train because it was continually filling the temple. He saw battles that he even hadn't yet faced. And it was on the train. He knew what he was facing. See, Isaiah was prophesying that Assyria, the kingdom of the north, was going to come down. He was kind of a doom and gloom prophet at the time. But yet he saw that God would restore Israel. And he saw his own restoration and his own salvation on that train. And Isaiah's response to seeing the victories was, Here I am, Lord. Send me. Of course, he's standing before a holy God. It's one of the ironic things about the presence of God is that often when you stand before a holy God and see all the things that he's done, you suddenly realize how small and insignificant you are and how unclean you are. And Isaiah goes, man, I am done. I don't stand a chance. I'm dead. Probably the brightest thing Isaiah could do. I don't think I want to stand before God and show him the list of all the things I've done. Yet somehow we get the idea that we have to do things for God to be pleased with us. That somehow we have to follow lists of rules and regulations and things and and then present them to God and go, Hey God, here's all the stuff I did for you. Can I get into your heaven? I don't think Isaiah felt that way. I'm not bringing God my train I'm bringing him my unclean lips. I'm a man of unclean lips. God, I'm sunk. And it's in that moment when he doesn't send you out to go get your own victories to impress him. He just takes a piece of his fire, puts it on your lips, and he says, these victories, they're yours. You don't have to fight for your salvation. You don't have to fight for your victory. I already won. This train is filling the temple so you'll believe what I spoke to you. So you'll believe the promise that I gave you. So just like Hannah, who with groans and tears, when even the priests were calling her drunk, God heard everyone and he will fulfill everything that he's promised. These victories are your victories. 
Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? So what Isaiah saw was the glory of God, the train filling Solomon's temple, but God says, I don't live in Solomon's temple anymore. I don't live in an ark. I don't care what you saw in Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't live in a box anymore. I live in human hearts. And you are my temple. And I will fill that temple with my victory. And the train of his robe fills the temple. It's why Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled. Listen to me. Be filled with the Spirit. Do you know that the Hebrew word I told you about in Isaiah and the Greek word in Ephesians both mean continually filled? It's not a one-time shot. It means you can continually be filled. Just like the train of his robe was filling the temple, can I tell you, his spirit will continually fill you if you'll allow him, if you'll ask him. And every patch, every cloth, every scrap represents a victory for you. What inhabits you is not a spirit of despair, is not a spirit of complacency, it's not a spirit of conviction. It is the spirit of victory. And on that train is cancer. On that train is diabetes, is poverty, is the common cold. All of it is on the train. And when we receive His Spirit, it's a spirit of sonship and daughterhood. It is a spirit of victory. And the train of His robe will fill you if you'll welcome Him. And when His train, when His victory, when we are filled with, baptized in, immersed in, whatever term you want to use, with the Holy Spirit, we begin to see our situation with His eyes and not ours. You see, when we see things from God's eyes, we realize that He looks at our problem, but He looks at it in consideration of all of the resource of heaven. Do, do you hear this? It's why Jesus looks at five loaves and two fish and goes, yep, that'll do to feed a multitude. Who, who, who thinks that way? The disciples were like, what? Five loaves, two? That's like, not even a crumb is going to feed these people. But it's Jesus that looks at it and goes, yep, that'll do. Why? Because he sees the resources of heaven. Do you know that Jesus actually fed 4,000 people after he fed 5,000 people the same way? Did you know that? There's two stories of that in the Bible. Some say it's the same story, but I think Jesus was pretty good at getting his numbers right. One was five, one was four. It was two separate occurrences. Sometimes I think he fed the 4,000 later just to see if the disciples' thinking had changed. You see, when I first presented to you feeding a multitude of 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, you all thought it was impossible. But then you saw the miracle. Let me do this one more time and see if you now view this from the perspective of heaven 
instead of the perspective of earth. You see, when you're filled with the Spirit, you get the mind of Christ. And when you get the mind of Christ, you get the eyes of Christ. So you no longer view things from the resources of your bank account. You no longer view them from the resources of the stuff you're good at. You view them from the resource of heaven. And you begin to see. (laughs) If two or more gather in my name, there I am in the midst. God, we want your presence. We got to bring the greatest evangelists here. We got to raise money and bring these great speakers so your presence is here. That's the viewpoint of earth. If I get the right speaker, if I get the right venue, if I have the right marketing, if I have enough money, God will show up. But when you get the Spirit of God living in you, you no longer view your problem from the perspective of earth. You view it from the perspective of the resource of all heaven. And you go, if we've got two people, God is here. He's in our midst. He's present. And it's all we need. When you get the view from the resource of heaven... All you see is the faith of a mustard seed. Well, look at this guy. His prayers are like, got. I mean, I've seen this guy pray, and it's like faith coming out of his ears. But when this guy prays, it's like this little teeny thing. But the resource of heaven goes, that's a mustard seed? That's enough to move Mount Trashmore. Or Mount Everest. Because God says, all you need is the faith of a mustard seed to move a mountain. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of looking at my problems from the perspective of earth. Jesus said, my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know where I need this more than anything else? It's right here. In my own head. I want heaven to invade earth. I want heaven to invade my thinking so that I think like God thinks. That doesn't, come hap- that doesn't happen by an act of the flesh. Do you hear me? I don't see things the way God does and think about things the way God does because I decide to with my mind. It's because I have surrendered my heart like Isaiah did and I have allowed his spirit to overwhelm me and to consume me from the inside out. Then I see the victory. I see the train. I see the victory. I see the accomplishment and I go... Oh my gosh, God, look at what you've done. Look at what you've done. Of course you can handle this situation. Of course my daughter can be healed. Of course I can pay my mortgage. Of course we can see this city won. Of course we can close hospitals down because there's no sick people anymore. Of course we can see all the jails empty because nobody needs to go to jail anymore. Of course our city can be turned right side up to have a kingdom perspective now because you see it from heaven's perspective. But it's not going to happen because you read a book and followed a pattern and decided to change your mind because you can't change your mind but the Spirit can. When we're filled with His Spirit, we're filled with His victory. Tonight, 
you're going to be filled with victory. Maybe some for the first time, or maybe some of you again. I've been touched by God many times, but I want more every single time. So we're going to pray for people in a moment, and we're going to pray for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you may say, well, I I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but this whole tongues thing, you guys can stay. Actually, we're not going to play music. That's okay. Thank you, though. Um, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but man, if he makes me do something weird, I really don't want that. Well, first of all, he doesn't make you do anything. But sometimes when you're filled with the Spirit, there is a manifestation of that. I know Romy's talked about this before. Sometimes she gets the shake. She starts shaking, right? You don't start shaking so that you get filled with the Holy Spirit. But sometimes God manifests himself. I've seen people fall flat on their backs, out under the power of God. They can't move, right? But they're filled with joy and peace. The Bible says one of the initial evidences of being filled with the Holy Spirit is speaking in other tongues. I've seen people do that. I do it regularly. I'm not teaching on tongues tonight because it isn't about tongues. It's about being filled. Here's what I want you to, to understand. Whatever God wants to do in you, let him. Why resist it? If he's your father and he wants to give you good gifts, why would you not want to let him do what he's going to do? Do you know what I do, though? I'm a planner and a strategizer, so I like to plan out how God's going to touch me. You know what I mean? I'm kind of a crier sometimes, so when God touches me, I cry. That was a big breaking point for me. But then after a while, I'm like, well, that's how God touches me. But the laughter thing, I'm a little uncomfortable with that one. So I'm like, God, I'll let you touch me, but don't don't do this. I just want to say, as we pray for you tonight, just receive and let God touch you however he wants to touch you. And as we close, I just was thinking about Jesus. I love him so much. (laughs) What you wear says a lot about you. Isaiah prophesied later that about Jesus saying he was crushed for our iniquity. And it's by his stripes we were healed. The stripes he's talking about is the cat of nine tails that they tortured him with and ripped fleshes uh, or strips of flesh off of his back before they crucified him. It wasn't enough just to kill him. They had to torture him as well. The enemy thought that every time he whipped him with this cat of nine tails that he was inflicting pain and punishment. And the reality of it was that every time that whip hit his back, it was putting another patch on that train. What looked like torture, what looked like defeat, was that Jesus on his own body was making a train of victory for you. And by his stripes, we were healed. Every strike was, boom, cancer. 
Boom. Dyslexia. Boom. No corpus callosum. Boom. Allergies. Whatever it was. He became the train that filled the temple. And that crimson flow so beautifully stained his own body and created for us a scarlet train of victory. Can I tell you, whatever you're facing, it's on that train. Whatever you need, it's on the train. Whatever you fear, its death is recorded on the train. Every sin is on the train. Every battle you will face is on the train. Every healing is on the train. And the train of his robe will fill your temple. Amen. Come on, pray with me tonight. Oh, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come. We invite you here tonight. We invite you to come. Fill this temple. Fill us, your people, with the power of your presence. Renew a right spirit within us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, God. I'm going to ask you to do something tonight. You can just keep your eyes closed if you want. When Isaiah was faced with seeing the very face of God, and when he saw the glory of the Lord and all of the victories and all of the accomplishments fill the temple, he saw his own lack. He saw his own sin. And he cried out to God and said, I'm a man of unclean lips. That's what we call repentance and confession. And can I tell you that if you want God's Spirit to fill you, it's going to require your confession and repentance as well. He's not going to come where he's not wanted and not welcome. But if you'll begin to put yourself on that altar of sacrifice, I promise you fire will fall on sacrifice every single time. I just want you to ask God right now, just between you and him. Ask him to search you. And if you know of some stuff that's going on in your life, maybe it's an area of sin in your life. Maybe it's some unforgiveness that's in your heart right now. Can I just ask you between you and God just to put it on the altar? Just like Isaiah prayed, Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips. Just give it to God and say, God, I confess this sin to you. you can, I'm not saying you've got to stand up. No one's going to give you a microphone to confess your sin before everybody. It's not what we do here. This is between you and God. But he wants to fill you tonight. He wants to fill you tonight. Just begin to confess that to him. So, Lord, I lay my fear on that altar again. I lay that fear on your altar. The fear of what could be and the fear of what might not be. I give it to you. The future is in your hands. Forgive me, God. I forgive all of those who have offended me. Forgive me, Lord, for taking offense at things that 
I had no business being offended by. Forgive me, God, for not being quick to surrender areas of my heart that I know keep building up a wall. God, I know it's me that's putting the brick up there. It's not you. And it's not even other people. But I thank you that you love me enough to blow down that wall every single time. Forgive me, God. I repent of those evil thoughts. I repent of the unforgiveness, and I forgive every single one of them in Jesus' name. Come on, just begin to do it yourself. It's okay. This is a good place. Thank you, Jesus. And if tonight, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and if you want to receive that spirit of victory for you tonight, I want you to come on down the front. Just come on and get up where you are, and we're going to pray for you tonight. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources like this, or to find information about our weekly services, visit seashorechurch.com.